Our text today is Psalm 91. In your bulletin, it would show verses 1 through 7, but I'll read the entire psalm, all 16 verses. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in Him I will trust. Surely He shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with His feathers, and under His wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. No evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high, because he has known my name. He shall call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the gift of life, and we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit by which we live this life, for the gift of salvation and the sacrifice of Christ. All of these together, Lord, draw us into your presence, have allowed us to be adopted into your family. We give you thanks for this precious truth and for this present reality. We ask you now to guide us, uh, allow our minds to focus on your word, and on your presence in our world and in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We don't know who wrote Psalm 91. Well, at least I don't know who wrote Psalm 91. Perhaps Pastor Kaiser knows his lessons on the Old Testament thus far, his sermons on the Old Testament thus far have been very humbling to me. He's gone so deep in all of them in just a summary level. And so I wouldn't be surprised if Pastor Kaiser knows for certain that this was written by Moses on a balmy Sunday afternoon after he'd come down from Mount Sinai. I just don't know. But Spurgeon admits that he did not know. And yet, in his Treasury of David, concerning the Psalms, he had this to say about Psalm 91. In the whole collection... There is not a more cheering psalm. Its tone is elevated and sustained throughout. Faith is at its best and speaks nobly. A German physician was wont to speak of it as the best preservative in times of cholera. And in truth, it is a heavenly medicine against plague and pest. 
He who can live in its spirit will be fearless, even if once again London should become a Lazar house and the grave be gorged with carcasses. Spurgeon lived and preached in the latter half of the 1800s. And so the Black Plague, the Bubonic Plague, had devastated London about 200 years before his time. And yet he refers to this Lazar house, which is a place of quarantining people with infectious disease. And so typically you'd think of that as just being a building, but he refers to all of London as having once been a Lazar house and perhaps once more will be. Our time, I think, we can relate to these, this sentence of his that he has here. It says, Psalm 91 is a heavenly medicine against plague and pest. Plague, I think, is obvious. Coronavirus, COVID-19. It might not, we might not see it yet, but many believe we will. So Psalm 91 is a heavenly medicine against plague and pest. Now we know that coronavirus is uh, a pestilence. It originated with bats in Wuhan, China just a few months ago. And for this reason, we as humans have very little immunity to it. It's recent and so we don't have what these epidemiologists refer to as a herd immunity to it. And so we were susceptible to it. But now I'd like to take Spurgeon's sentence and modify it a little bit, at least in terms of our understanding of it. He said, Psalm 91 is a heavenly medicine against plague and pest. So both of those can relate to what we're going through with this coronavirus. But I would like to take the word pest and give another definition as well. Pests, I think, can be a proper term for what those who are now less concerned about coronavirus regard those of us that are more concerned about coronavirus. In other words, we are bothersome to them and we are potentially very destructive to them. They are not comfortable with what is going on in our world and especially in this country with a history of liberties as we have them. They're afraid that they may lose these liberties because of this herd mentality of everybody self-sequestering and being uh, obedient to the government's request to voluntarily sequester ourselves. The home Tabitha and I are living in out here has been a home in which pests were living for years and likely still are, although we've been attempting to deal with that. On the first level where we humans live, there are the mice that appear to still be getting around because we'll see these little mouse droppings. And then in the attic where we've been doing a lot of work to clean out the soil insulation and what the rats have damaged, we believe there still are rats and so we've put traps all over the place. These pests are bothersome and have been in the past very destructive. What's playing out across the world today is at the very least disconcerting to all of us. 
And let me share with you my familiarity with that word, disconcerting. I, 40 years ago, I lived only about 15 miles northwest of here on Camp Pendleton. I had two roommates. One was named Fritz. And one Saturday, Fritz drove up to L.A. to attend a play. The play was Nicholas Nickleby, and it was six hours long. Todd, his other roommate, and I were shocked that our roommate would go watch a play in L.A. for six hours, but that was just Fritz. He was an unusual guy. But what's funny is when he returned, we asked him, how was the play? And he said, good. But what he wanted to share with us was what happened immediately afterwards. He was leaving the theater, and he was several yards behind a very well-dressed elderly couple. And as they're walking along the sidewalk, there was a man up ahead in his car, and he was upset with somebody being in his way, and he was beeping, 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 beeping. And this elderly man in front of him that was well-dressed walked up to the car, got the man's attention, and said, Excuse me, sir, but your actions are very disconcerting. And our roommate Fritz just smiled when he shared that story because I think that's really why he went to see a play in L.A. that was six hours long. He wanted to be with people like that, that when confronted with something that was so jarring as a man honking his horn, they could just walk up to him and say very calmly those words. What's interesting about Fritz is he got out of the service he worked as a radar repairman for a couple of years, but then he went back to school, got his law degree, and he is an attorney in New York City. And so he did pursue that type of life. So what's happening today is disconcerting at the least, as I said, but it's far more than that, we know. It can be very scary, very unsettling to us as a people. When I was a child... I was in a family of five children. I was the fourth of five kids. And we went to an amusement park near where we lived. This was near Pittsburgh, and it was Kennywood Park. And sadly, all four of my siblings loved scary rides, but I did not. I remember still going on a what would now be considered probably a very relatively calm roller coaster with my younger sister, and she had a blast. But I was scared to death the whole time. And what scared me most was the very beginning of the ride where we're going up this hill very slowly. They lock us into those seats. That bar comes down. And then you start moving up this hill. And I could just feel the panic rising. And it didn't help once we hit that hill and started falling down the other side. The suspense is what's killing us relative to this panic right now, relative to this pandemic. Another illustration of tension that I'm reminded of from my youth was when I first watched the movie The Blob. This was released in 1958, one of the earliest films starring Steve McQueen. And this monster from outer space is now attempting to eat all life on Earth in this community in which it landed. And there's one scene where everybody is sitting in a movie theater and they show the blob seeping through the vents 
along all the edges of the theater. And they play that out for a minute or so. You just keep watching this blob seep in, wondering when it will be noticed. And again, that's kind of the situation we're in. We're just wait, wait, wait. We're in that tense period of waiting. Many, many today are concerned about potentially losing millions of lives here and around the world. And others are very concerned about the loss of civil, civil liberties. We have already had our civil liberties severely restricted. And there is a real concern that some of these liberties will truly never be liberties in the future, that they will be not be rights, that they will be something instead that the government controls. So let's get to our text. I want to reread verses 1 and 2. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in Him I will trust. Part of the reason that we all love Psalm 91 may not be immediately obvious to us, but in these two verses, we have four references to God. Most High, Almighty, Lord or Jehovah, and God. Most High, Elion, Almighty, Shaddai, Lord, Jehovah, God, Elohim. These four references to God give us four aspects of who God is and his character and behavior. Most High, El Yon, he is the supreme monarch. This speaks to God as the ultimate authority to whom everyone answers eventually. Almighty Shaddai, God is all-powerful. Not only does God have authority, he exercises that authority. He rules this world. Nothing happens without his say-so. Lord, Yahweh, that is his personal name revealed to us. And so God, even though he is all-powerful and has all authority in the universe, he allows himself to be approached by his people, those whom he loves. And then God, Elohim. This is the first reference right in the beginning of Genesis. And this is in the plural. And so it speaks of him as the creator, as the author of life. And so this speaks to God's preeminence. He is before all things. In him all things move and have their being, Paul said. God reveals himself, but more, he affirms why in these two verses we are safe with him. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God in Him I will trust. So we see that God has provided us a secret place. We can abide under His shadow and we have in Him a refuge and a fortress. And for these reasons, we trust Him because of who He is and what He's done for us. God wants us to know in these first two verses that we are safe when we're with him. And yet the text says that we experience this security only when we dwell with him, 
he who dwells in the secret place of the Most High. This dwell means that it is our home, our residence. A way of reading this that I think would make it more clear to our modern ears is he who lives in the secret place of the Most High. And by that we mean that's where our home is. Tabitha and I plan to be here in California all year. We're fairly isolated. I just have to let you know that we um, practiced social distancing before it became cool. We are living here, but I would not regard us as dwelling here. We have two children in California. We have two children in Nebraska. But I would admit that our hearts are in Nebraska. And I was personally confirmed in that. I was tested in that regard when I began looking up stats for what's going on with this virus. Because when I look at all the states listed, I immediately look for Nebraska. What are the number of cases? Have we had any deaths? For the first time or two, I don't even think I noticed California, even though I'm residing in that state right now. It is not on my heart. Nebraska is. There is a saying, home is where your heart is. And this is very true. Your home is where you have put your affection. I have heard a few husbands say, and I think it's a beautiful saying, home is wherever my wife is. And these men feel unsettled as when they're not with their wife. When my wife was out here in California last year for a few weeks, off and on, a few months here and there, I was unsettled back in Omaha. I wanted my wife with me. That was home to me. The comfort and security of God's home is reserved for those whose hearts reside there. The title of this message is Living in the Shadows. In verse 1 we read, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. The word shadow appears in our New King James Bible 65 times. And it has three primary meanings in those 65 occurrences. Eleven of the occurrences refer to real shadows. It's not a figurative term, it's just a real term. Another 14 use the term shadow as something transitory or passing, like a vapor. And so that's another 14. So that's 25 of the 65. So the remaining 40 all have the same meaning. It's one of protection or authority, influence or responsibility. Ten of the 40 pertain to either person, nation, or thing. The one concerning the person is Abraham in Genesis. He speaks of these men, these angels, that are coming to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah as being under the shadow of his roof. What he means by that is not that they're in the shade, but that they're under his protection. He is to guard them, to to be watching out for them. Four of them refer to nations, the shadow of Egypt, the shadow of Israel. Five of them refer to things. Again, it's a phrase, but it's like in the shadow of a tree or the shadow of a mountain. Again, it's not just shadow, 
but it's that you're under the influence or in the area of those things. So that takes us down to 30. We've covered 35 of the 65 meanings. So the remaining 30 have one of two meanings. They're still under the protection, authority, influence, responsibility, but they're these. Ten of them, ten of them refer to God. Our text says that, the shadow of the Almighty. Ten of the references to shadow are like that. Another 20 concern death, the shadow of death. So we have half of the occurrences, roughly, of shadow being under the influence of either death or God. The clearest reference to God's shadow is here in verse 1. Shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. It's very clear. Elsewhere it will say the shadow of his wings, using more of a euphemism. The clearest example, and one that we would all probably know by heart, is in Psalm 23, verse 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. I just watched the book of Eli again uh, just a few weeks ago, and I can hear Denzel Washington quoting that from memory on the road. We fallen humans are always walking through the valley of the shadow of death. But that shadow waxes and wanes throughout our lives. It's not always the dark, gloomy shadow, but sometimes it is. It is dark and oppressive. Now, usually, this happens in small groups, like, for instance, with the death of a loved one. The death of a loved one affects this pocket of people, maybe a few people, maybe a few dozen people, but not typically hundreds or thousands of people. It affects this pocket of people. And then, this shadow of death is looming largely over that group of people. Another experience from back 40 years ago when I lived here was a co-worker, a fellow Marine who was in my radar unit. He and a friend and their wives were at a swap meet just north of here, about eight, nine miles, and a small plane came down during the swap meet on a Saturday afternoon, and it was horrible. Many people were hurt and killed by this small plane landing there, and he and his friend were running around attempting to triage, help triage people. And it was shocking to him. He was traumatized by that. He was suddenly thrust fully into the shadow of death. Sometimes, like in that instance, you experience this shadow of death collectively. You're there with these hundreds of people at a swap meet and this happens. Nationally, we experienced this last in 2001 with 9-11 suddenly this nation was thrust under the shadow of death. I just read a book to Tabitha a few uh, weeks ago entitled 102 Minutes. That was the time it took from the time that the North Tower was struck by the first plane to where it fell 102 minutes later, and in between the South Tower had also been struck and fell. It talks about everything that was going on in and around both of the buildings and people that either made it barely out with their lives or they didn't. They died in the wreckage. Our experience today is very personal. 
We are all enduring this collectively. We are all under the shadow of death. Another interesting thing about what's going on now, this COVID-19 pandemic and 9-11, is that both events led to loss of personal liberty. And the question is, is the present loss of liberty only temporary, or will some of it remain permanent? We know that with the Patriot Act, aspects of our freedoms were lost most likely forever. And yet, is that going to happen again? And so we are rightfully concerned about this. We live under the shadow of death all the time. But do we live under the shadow of the Almighty? Verse 3 says, Surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. From the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. Again, the perilous pestilence is obvious. That's COVID-19 relative to today. But what is the snare of the fowler? Well, some interesting things have happened in the last week. It's been a very interesting 10 days. At work, we received an email that phishing schemes have greatly increased, you know, where people are attempting to steal your private data. People see opportunity here. Many of these are coming in from Russia. I would imagine some of them are also uh, emanating from China. But people are attempting to steal our personal information because they know that we'll click on anything that says coronavirus. Some governments have already floated ideas to pass emergency gun control legislation. They want the governments not selling guns, not approving permits, that type of thing. Politicians in Washington are spending money like drunken sailors. They're attempting to protect the stock market, and yet if this is going to be endured for months and months, are they going to spend a trillion dollars every week? It's just crazy what's going on. Civil liberties, personal freedoms are being voluntarily sacrificed or taken, should they not be sacrificed. But I have to ask, though, do these issues directly relate to the promise of our text? Our text said, surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. This is being directed to us, but as individuals. The promise in the text is to a particular person, a particular bird that is potentially going to be caught in a trap by a fowler. I'll read Psalm 33, verses 13 through 15. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From the place of his dwelling he looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually. He considers all their works. Last June when I read that as part of my reading through the Bible, I made this comment. Though humans are numerous, They are each uniquely crafted by God. God also takes note of the works of every individual. God deals in specifics, not aggregates and averages. A line I love, I love many things about Terminator, but a line I love from Terminator 2 was where the Terminator is driving the car away from having uh, rescued the mom, Sarah Connor, And she asks him, how much do you know about this? In other words, about what's going on. 
And he looks at her with that weird look and says, I have detailed files. That's sometimes how I think of what our world is like. God knows everything. He knows absolutely everything. And so we must trust our God with that knowledge. And we must always acknowledge that we don't know everything. And so we must approach the future always with humility. God has broad plans that affect everyone on earth. We know that God rules, not only at the individual level, but at the national, international level. Yet amidst those international plans, he watches over those that seek him for refuge. Every individual, he has a plan for them. God loves rescuing people. He is the ultimate superhero. God often answers foxhole prayers. I've read and watched many movies concerning war. And some of the vignettes I love the most are where someone shares this remarkable rescue that they experienced. And what sometimes is obvious through the book or the movie is that they really don't know God. But in a moment of fear and panic, they prayed a foxhole prayer to God and God rescued them immediately. God answered Ahab's prayer because he had humbled himself and put on sackcloth. Ahab was still a scoundrel. He eventually died a scoundrel. But God had mercy on him because he had humbled himself. Humility goes an awful long way with God. Last fall, when I had copious quantities of free time and I was still not working for a living, I enjoyed watching some World War II videos. One of them was entitled Spitfire, The Plane That Saved the World. This was a Netflix movie. And at about the 59th minute, I had this lovely presentation. And let me share a part with you. It was concerning Britain. It was before America got in the war. Britain is attempting to move their, some of their Spitfires down to the island of Malta in the middle of the Mediterranean. And this elderly man is being interviewed. And yet at the time that he was flying a Spitfire, many years earlier, he was only 20 years old. And he was leading a flight of 10 other planes across the Mediterranean. Now, they had had no training in launching from an aircraft carrier, landing on an aircraft carrier. He had no map in his cockpit as to how to get to Malta. He'd never been to Malta. But these 11 planes were following another plane called a Fulmer that then got lost in a cloud. And he thinks it might have gone down with mechanical failure, but he was all alone, and he is the flight leader of these 11 planes. And this is what Tom Neal said. I didn't know what to do. And I flew around in circles with the ten following planes doing the same. Them looking at me as the leader and me not knowing what to do. And I can tell you, I prayed, I prayed. I didn't know what to do, what to do. And God answered. He doesn't answer you with a flash of lightning. He puts something in your head that you never thought of before. And I thought, what I'd better do now is fly all the way back to Gibraltar. So I set off, and by the grace of God, I came across the wake of our navy. 
I encourage you during your sequestration, a word that sounds horrible, that you watch this. If you just, even if you don't want to watch the whole show, just go to this 59th minute. If you have Netflix, it's called Spitfire, the Plane that Saved the World. This is a beautiful, beautiful uh, illustration of a man who knew God and depended upon him in this time of uh, fear and panic and very, very real jeopardy. Verse 7 of our text says, A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. God's promises are to individuals. It's individuals that come to him or don't come to him. It's individuals that dwell with him in the secret place because that's where they've put their heart. That's where their home is. Let's go on to verse 4. He shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. Think of Rahab when the spies came into the land, and they're there talking with her, and then the guards come. They've heard that these spies are there. And she hides them on this wall under the flax on her roof. Imagine the tension those spies endured as they perhaps can hear what's going on between her and the guards. By contrast, what we experience here is we snuggle up to God like baby chicks do to their mother. And I ask you, does a baby chick have any fear, any concern, when they are snuggled up next to their mother? Regardless of what is going on in the world all around them, those baby chicks are comfortable and entirely at peace. Jesus uses this image when he's about to enter Jerusalem. In Matthew 23, 37, he writes this. Jesus said this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing That is how God loves us. That is how he wants to have us turn to him and cast all of our anxiety aside because we're with him. The second part of that verse says, His truth shall be your shield and buckler. God alone knows the future. It's why we can be so divided over what to do today. We can be divided Each church can be divided over whether we want to have worship services or postpone them, whether we want to honor the request of the government or disobey it because we think that's what God would have us do. And we're acting now with this sequestration based on projections and expectations that we personally have not experienced. And we look at the numbers still and we think, well, this is hardly an epidemic yet. But see, some people are wired for understanding future events better than others, I think. Some people are used to analyzing data, looking at trends, perceiving what's going on, and other people aren't. And so God has us have to work together to understand one another, to learn to trust what we ourselves don't understand. We all have facts and we extrapolate from those facts. A few days ago, I was reading a New York Times article and it had a very interesting calculator embedded in it. You could provide percentages of, in America of what you believe the infection rate might be 
and then what the mortality rate might be. And so, for instance, if you type in that you think one out of five Americans will be infected, 20% infection rate, and that the mortality rate would be half a percent, that means that in America, about 325,000 people would die from this, which is a huge number, but it's less than would often die during an annual flu epidemic. The, one of the worst flu, flu epidemics was just about 10, 15 years ago, and many, people, many more people died than this. It was like almost eight or 900,000 people died, but it's kind of going off in onesies and twosies over many, many months, and uh, we just don't know this. We don't pay attention to it. If you were to increase the infection rate to 30% and increase the mortality rate to 3%, it means that 3 million Americans would die. Governor Newsom here in California has told the federal government that he's been told that he can expect a 56% infection rate in California. If in the U.S. we have a 56% infection rate and a 4% mortality rate, which is kind of what it's running now nationally with the numbers that you see, that means 7.5 million Americans would die. But actually, the mortality rate right now in the U.S. is like 1.3%. In Germany, it's far less. In Italy, it's far higher. The mortality rates nation by nation are widely, widely differing from one another. And so we don't yet know why. Now, that concerns this plague. But yet, we are also concerned about losing liberties. And the people concerned about losing liberties also have facts on their side. Governments have ordered citizens who are non-essential to supporting life to stay home. California uh, Governor Newsom has spoke of having the National Guard maintain order. I am personally not aware of any riot whatsoever that has occurred in California, and, and yet our governor is anxious to pull the sword from his scabbard. My employer has sent a letter certifying that our business is critical to maintaining the infrastructure of the U.S. And now get this. They included in that email a letter that we are to print out and have with us in our cars should we be stopped and asked why we're out on the roads. Now, of course, none of this is required at this point, but my employer is thinking and at least providing for that possibility such that we could have many of our people. We operate in 23 states. And so they want everybody to have these in their glove box such that if one day we have checkpoints set up across America where we have to endure someone saying, papers please, that we have papers to show them. This is frightening. We should all be concerned about the potential erosion of our rights with what's going on. And I am very appreciative of those that are concerned. But Concerns can quickly lead us down destructive paths as opposed to constructive paths. God has a plan. God is executing that plan. And God's plan accounts for each one of us, each one of his children that dwell with him in the secret place, the refuge. Let me read verses 5 through 7 of Psalm 91. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness, 
nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand shall fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Time forces me to jump to the end of this psalm. I want to read verses 14 through 16 and then comment briefly on them. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. This is God speaking. I will set him on high because he has known my name. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. In this brief three verses, God himself makes eight I will statements. He begins by saying, because he has set his love upon me. This is what God will do because we have set our love upon him. I will deliver him from terror, arrow, pestilence, destruction. I will set him on high where the enemy cannot get him. I will answer him, answer his requests when he calls. I will be with him, comfort us with his presence like the mother hen. I will deliver him, again it says deliver him, from enemy snares, from evil, from the plague. I will honor him, reward him for his loyalty and for his fealty and for his love. I will satisfy him with a long, rewarding life. I will show him my salvation. Show us what it means to be God's child, what it is that we have to look forward to. It was in 1966 that Robert Kennedy gave a speech, and in that speech he said, There is a Chinese curse that says, May he live in interesting times. Like it or not, we live in interesting times. There are times of danger and uncertainty, but they are also more open to the creative energy of men than at any other time in history. When we read J.I. Packer's Knowing God book, there is a phrase in there that has always stuck with me in his uh, foreword. If the proper study of mankind is man, the proper study of Christian man is God. And so we would not take uh, RFK's comments about the creative energy of men lightly. We would perceive that differently. The future does not belong to the creative energy of men. That can be too easily pointed towards evil ends. The future is God's. The pen that writes our future rests in God's hand, not man's hand. We are God's servants. We are his children. We are to look to him for guidance. We are to run to him in distress. And we are to dwell with him in safety, in the secret place he has prepared for us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the fact that you are our God who loves us, who cares for us and who has made these eight wonderful promises in verses 14 through 16 of Psalm 91. Lord, please guide us, lead us in casting all of our cares upon you. May we seek our security in you and only in you. 
We pray that you would bless us in the days ahead. These are unsettling times. And yet, Father, you are on the throne, and we will follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.